This is episode 275 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by our patrons. Listeners just like you can sign up to support our show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to a library of bonus history content. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hello, I'm Dr. Ian Mortimer, the author of The Time Traveler's Guide to Elizabethan in England. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. There's a moment in Midsummer Night's Dream, I'm sure you know, where the mechanics are putting their play on stage for... Theseus and Hippolyta. And the prologue is saying, is kind of presenting everybody and really, really bungles the punctuation. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In his 1611 English to French Dictionary, Randall Cotgrave defines the exclamation point as the point of admiration and detestation, end quote. While credit for the original creation of the exclamation point is given to an Italian named Urbiscalia, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that last name incorrectly, but I'll spell it for you in the show notes. The current version of the exclamation point that we know today developed between 1400 and 1600 during the time William Shakespeare was penning over 6,000 uses of exclamation points that we can find in his works. In the absence of emojis, punctuation was the way that writers communicated varying emotion and called attention to important sections of a play or a story where it needed to have just a little more oomph to what you were writing. Our guest this week, Florence Hazrat, has completed the book An Admiral Point, A Brief History of the Exclamation Point, and joins us today to share some of the history of where this bit of English grammar originated and how it was being used or not used in Shakespeare's lifetime. Florence Hazrat is a researcher of Renaissance literature, a podcaster, radio guest, journalist, and author of the book An Admiral Point, A Brief History of the Exclamation Point, which was published by Profile Books and featured on BBC4. Florence holds an undergraduate and master's degree from Cambridge, where she learned to read and love Renaissance handwriting. Later, she finished her PhD in remembering poetry. Find out more about Florence and her latest book in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Florence. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hi, Cassidy. Thank you for having me. Florence writes that by the time standardized books were being printed, like the Bible, the exclamation point was a standard in all European languages. Florence, did the exclamation point have universal meaning and usage across Europe since it was appearing in all of these different places? Yes, it probably did have universal meaning because it came from a humanist background, a scholarly background, and then sort of trickled into pedagogical texts. It 
was picked up by Erasmus. And if something is picked up by Erasmus, it's really going everywhere and uh, into the furthest corners of Europe, because of course, it's also in Latin. So people probably did have the same kind of idea of what an exclamation point was or how it would function. Although it took a little bit of time for people really to get used to it. And just as today, where we are not entirely sure how to use this emoji or that emoji, there's a difference between generations in terms of usage of emojis. And the same goes also for the Renaissance in terms of punctuation marks. There was, however, probably a difference in understanding the the mark or the point and how to in terms of what context to use it, because we have punctuation treatises. And in the UK, for example, they never fully say you shouldn't use it at all. That comes much, much later. That comes in the in the 18th century and then in the 19th and 20th century in the UK in the English space. But in Italy, there is a, a punctuation treatise by the grandson of Aldo Manuzio. And he says, okay, here is also, here's the entirety of punctuation. Here's also the exclamation point, but make sure not to overuse it. So we have this kind of reticence that we feel nowadays very much, we have that in some contexts, but certainly not in the British context. As English was developing as a language in Shakespeare's lifetime, spelling and punctuation were caught in the middle of a wild debate about what was going to be the standard for the entire English language as a whole. Florence writes about a man named John Hart, who had very strong opinions about the exclamation point in 1551. Florence, what did John Hart write about this symbol and how did he think it was supposed to be used? So John Hart is a reformer of language and he's interested in how to standardize language, but also how to make it inclusive. So he says a northerner should be able to write in whichever way he or she is speaking. So he was constantly thinking about the representation of dialect, of speech, of language, of local color as well. And he was also thinking about punctuation. He calls the exclamation point the wanderer. And that really goes back to its original context because it was invented in Italy in the middle of the 14th century in order to express admiration not yet the entire spectrum of emotion, the way that we use it today, but to express admiration and wonder. And so he goes back to this original context and he calls the exclamation point the wanderer. He does register a kind of double life or like a twinned life of the exclamation point with the question mark because both of them have something to do with the la- with the sound of the voice they're about tuning our voice about somehow making sure that the sentence that we're saying or that we're reading is not just a statement but is also a question or an exclamation and sometimes you see that in the grammar of course but sometimes you might not see that so he was very aware of that and he suggested to include an upside down or like a mirrored rather a mirrored exclamation point and a mirrored question mark at the beginning of the sentence which of course kind of anticipates the spanish exclamation point and question mark that goes into spanish much much later in the 18th century. Now, it wasn't just spelling and language that was developing in Shakespeare's lifetime. Printing of these symbols was also in this state of fluidity with the act of printing symbols like exclamation points on paper varying greatly depending on who was doing the printing. Now, Florence, what did an exclamation point look like for the 16th century and how does it differ from what we know of as an exclamation point today? 
the shape of the exclamation point actually doesn't differ that much from the way we use it nowadays. I've also looked at some manuscripts. So people are really just using the shape of the mark that we also use today. So that's a, a dot at the bottom and then a stroke on top of that. So the, the shape is pretty much clear by the 16th century. Originally, that was not the case. Originally, the, both the question mark and the exclamation point have their dot and then a kind of leaning stroke, a stroke that leans to the right or a, a kind of hook of the question mark that also leans to the right. But at, at some point in the course of a few decades or hundreds of years, the marks sort of righted themselves and and now hover on top of one another. So in terms of the shape, that was pretty much the way that we also would write it today. But in terms of usage, as I said, it took a while for people to really understand just how are we supposed to use this this uh, piece of punctuation? And at the beginning, they would really use it for something like admiration, wonder, vocatives, like, for example, oh, or how or what, how beautiful or what a nice day, <laughs> to use like really simple examples. But in the folio, in the Shakespeare folio, we already have other kinds of uses. For example, a character says something and another character picks up the the same expression and puts an exclamation point at the end, sort of exclaims it in order to sort of say, one says, oh, the prince. And then the other says, oh, the prince, for example. So we already have different kinds of uses, but it really took around 200 years for the exclamation point to be attached to any kind of emotion. So Samuel Johnson in his dictionary in the middle of the 18th century writes that it's a pathetical sentence by which he means the passions so emotions you can express emotions with an exclamation point what about when a printer was trying to take exclamation points and actually put them on a printed page so i understand printers would buy a standard set of letters you know a through z and then it included some Ex, some punctuation marks. Would an exclamation point be a standard part of a letter set for a printer, or did he have to specifically purchase that separately? Mm. It would not be a standard, a part of the standard set, at least not in the early 17th century or late 16th century. Printers who were printing plays, for example, or poetry were more likely to have an exclamation point in the set that they were acquiring, simply because there's more emotion, there's more exclaiming, there's actual dialogue going on in the, in the stuff that they were printing. So it really depends on the genre, the kinds of texts that they were um, comfortable with printing really also depends on how much time they had, how much money, how how much preparation would go into the book, how neat is it going to be? And so how much care are they are they taking? There was definitely a possibility if they didn't have an exclamation point or if they didn't have enough anymore because they've all been used up to just repurpose type that they had. And then they would again go back to the past, to the original context, and just put a dot and an apostrophe on top of that. So they're again, like sort of dangling to the right, or they would um, put an upside down semicolon. So that's perfectly possible. That's not really a problem to just repurpose type. And just as a little parenthesis, we needed to still do that as early as the 80s or 70s because the typewriter came out of a commercial context and so there was 
on the typewriter, no need for exclaiming, just as some printers who were printing the Bible, for example, had no need for exclaiming. So if you wanted to type an exclamation point on a typewriter, you just have to do a dot and then back space and then put an apostrophe on top of that. And only in the 18th, uh, in the 1980s were there uh, machines with a dedicated exclamation point. So we are really also kind of doing what they used to, what they used to do back in the days. However, around the early 18th century, printers probably had the exclamation point available. And we know that because there are printer manuals that show pictures of types. So the woodcuts of types and you can see the uppercase and the lowercase in these manuals. And you can see symbols for the zodiac, for example, you can see um, ligatures. So like letters that are stuck together, like a double S, for example, or a double F. And uh, you can see punctuation. And in the earliest manual that we have by Joseph Moxon from the 1680s, there's no exclamation point. But that was probably the case because he just didn't use it. He was a printer of scientific stuff, natural philosophy. He was quite a well-educated printer and he was the, the king's hydrographer. So he really was interested in science and geography and not, again, not something where you need to ex exclaim. But then in the course of the 18th century, we have other manuals and they definitely show in the images of cases that they have the exclamation point. So that's a really interesting kind of practical context that we have to keep in mind that only uh, if there's a text and there's no exclamation points, that doesn't mean that people didn't know the sign, that they didn't want to use it, but it might mean that it was simply not available. And again, if I may say that, that goes uh, that is exactly the same for us today, where we have different kinds of keyboards in our smartphones and we have different things that are available. And of course, things are growing, emojis are growing and they have different, you know, uh, skin tones or abilities. But earlier, a couple of years earlier, when we didn't have them, we were just not able to make certain pictures or if you need to change your keyboard, for example, in order to get at a letter, then the likelihood is much smaller that you're going to pick that one, which is maybe more correct, like an apostrophe for I'm or something. It's perhaps less likely that we are going to be grammatically correct in this very form, informal medium of texting. And we will just put I and an I, an I and an M. And so those practicalities of writing really come into play as well when we're looking at these smaller things between letters. One person who not only used exclamation points liberally, but used them on purpose and was said to have even gotten upset with printers of his works when they did not use exclamation points in the way he intended was one of Shakespeare's contemporaries, Ben Jonson. If you've studied Ben Jonson, you will not be surprised at all to hear his flamboyant personality extends to his opinion on exclamation points. But Florence, what records survive about Ben Jonson concerning exclamation points and not only how, but what? do we know about his use of them in writing his plays? Oh, he was actually a huge punctuation fan. He was a very heavy punctuator because at the time there wasn't exactly a standardized way for punctuating. We, we have the first intimations throughout the course of the 16th century, but it was still very much a personal story. And it really stays like that for quite a while, where it's sort of like we both have a set of conventions, let's say, and they keep 
developing and they keep rigidifying a little bit and they they become less flexible. But there's also still a huge amount for your own personality to show up. And the entire history of punctuation is always one where several functions of punctuation really jostle and sort of rub up against each other. And you can see that in Ben Johnson because there is rhetorical punctuation where you want to flag up parts of speech. There is elocutionary punctuation where you want to take a breath and where you want to pause. And sometimes that overlaps with rhetoric and grammar and sometimes it doesn't. And then there's grammar and logic where you're really required to put some kind of punctuation mark in order to make sense of the sentence and choose one meaning over an ambiguity sometimes. So Ben Johnson is kind of juggling all of these different kinds of expressions or, or functions of punctuation. So the grammatical or logical, the rhetorical, and then the elocutionary. And he's a very heavy punctuator and he really wants his punctuation to be in his plays. So in the folio, in his complete works of 1616, there's just so, so, so much punctuation. And we're pretty sure that he was heavily involved in printing this, this piece of work, and that he would read copies and correct them. He would visit the print shop every day, maybe twice a day, and have a look through. And he's actually also on record of saying that his printer was loosening his points. So loosening his punctuation, taking things out, changing things. And he called him lewd. <laughs> so he was very angry about it. We do have a manuscript by Johnson. We have several letters as well. And really, we, we can really see how he uses all the repertoire of punctuation at his disposal. And the Mask of Queens, for example, we have the, uh, the manuscript. We see him using exclamation points as well and semicolons and commas and underlining. So he's really, really a rich source in terms of somebody who was very concerned about how his texts were read and his own presence and his own voice in the text. Because I think he's, he isn't just a grammar stickler. He is. He very much is that too. But I think he also sees his works really as works, a kind of like, Richard Wagner, you know, who builds his own Bayreuth opera houses so that his operas can really just, you know, be performed in these, in these organic places. And so I think Johnson was really also thinking about what a text is when he was thinking about punctuation. I love to think about what Johnson would have thought about texting and emojis in particular. <laughs> I can't decide if he would have loved this technology or pitched a fit because it was all abbreviations instead of using the, <laughs> the same words. But that's that's a rabbit trail for another day. As far as Shakespeare's use of exclamation points, him personally, our physical documentation that we have of what he actually wrote is very limited. But one of the only surviving manuscripts we do have that was written in Shakespeare's actual handwriting is a speech that he wrote for a play called Sir Thomas More. This speech can, is very impassioned, but when you read it, it has a surprising lack of punctuation. Florence, briefly explain this speech for the uninitiated and then tell us what can we learn from the surviving copies of the speech about how Shakespeare used, or I guess in this case omitted, the use of exclamation points specifically from this play. So Sir Thomas More is a play probably by Anthony Mundy and Henry Chettle that was written in the late uh, 16th century and then revised by several playwrights, 
probably also Shakespeare in 1603. But because it has some explosive material, it was never staged. At least we don't have a record of it ever being printed or ever being staged. And in fact, we have the master of revels, Henry Tilney's um, notes in the margin saying, unless you take this part out here, it just has no chance. You know, it's you you are staging this at your own peril, so you will be apprehended. And what is so explosive about it is uh, that there is a scene of some riots, some historical riots from 1517, where Londoners were upset at foreigners in in the city of London. So they were rioting against foreigners. And the the speech that we are looking at, that is probably by Shakespeare, is in the in the voice of Sir Thomas More, of course, he is this sort of superhero <laughs> that you either love or you hate in the Renaissance. He stood up against Henry VIII and uh, lost his head for his beliefs. And that in and of itself is a, an explosive material because, of course, it has the kind of pro-Catholic tendencies. And now we have in this speech Thomas More, who is talking to the rioters and who says, well, how would you feel if you had to leave your own country and you seek refuge somewhere else? And then those people, just as in your previous country, are violent uh, towards you. So it's a really beautifully humane speech. But uh, in, in those two pages that we have, there's a lot of crossing out. There's a lot of kind of I don't want to call it sloppy because, you know, we, we don't have anything to compare with. But it's somebody who probably writes in a hurry and who's thinking a, a lot about how to stage this. And apart from a couple of full stops, some periods and some commas, just no other punctuation. There's no question mark. There's no exclamation point where we definitely would today put one and where people maybe back in the days would potentially put one for example more tells the rioters peace peace and you know that's probably something where we would put an exclamation point and where, where it would make sense and also for people also for shakespeare but he he doesn't do that or the, the person who's writing this doesn't do that so the question is why did the person did he not know what these punctuation marks were about probably not that was widespread enough for him to know and also from his reading um he would have seen those kinds of marks perhaps he wrote uh, the he wrote so fast and kind of exploratorily let's say not for some not a, it's not a copy that you give somebody else it's for use because he knew that the actor would just give voice to the text and an actor just do just whatever they want with the interpretation of the text and they they have their body they have their voice to express exclaiming to express emotion so there was there was no need in a way for this particular copy to contain anything that tells the actor or the reader what to do with their voice or the voice in their heads it doesn't mean that Shakespeare, again, doesn't know punctuation and how to use it because there's a scene in Midsummer Night's Dream where the joke depends on the punctuation. And we cannot but think and assume that that was really important for people to get right. So whoever put the type, you know, was probably very careful to make sure that a reader would also get the joke. So the joke depends on misplacing full stops and then sort of bungling the sentence and um, actually being chaotic in the sentence. And characters in the Midsummer Night's Dream actually comment on that and say, well, it's like a, a chain that is where the, where the parts of the chain are fine, but they're totally 
tangled together. They don't make sense. So in that really only particular instance, we are pretty sure that in the manuscript or in the text that the printers had, that must have really, that must have been correct. The punctuation must have been correct or, or, and they were also able to, to interpret it correctly because the joke depended on that. But other than that, the text that came to the printers probably had very little punctuation and they themselves then made educated guesses in terms of what would work best, what they had available, what their habits were. We have, of course, um, tried to decode the folio, which hand has set which text and so on. And the second hand, for example, was a relatively heavy punctuator. And there's Wolf Crane, and he has the habit of using more parentheses. So people have their own habits that depend on the kinds of text that they're reading, maybe on the just personal preferences, the educational background, whether they read a lot of Latin, whether they read a lot of English that maybe has a tendency to have less punctuation. And in the folio, there are relatively few exclamation points, considering what a huge work it is. And the linguist, Professor David Crystal, had counted them, <laughs> which is very good. So I didn't have to do that. And there are around 350 exclamation points, which is really not very much for this huge, huge, huge work. And most of them come attached to vocative. So, oh, for example, oh, Juliet, or oh, moon. There are a couple of others as well. But for a work that is full of emotion and full of exclaiming, full of dialogue and and just human interaction. There's really quite quite few exclamation points. And again, those that were there are highly likely to have been put by the compositors, again, depending on what they had available, on their habits and on the manuscripts that they were working from. This is a fascinating look at exclamation points and where they show up and where they don't and how we can interpret them and think about them in terms of what was going on with the exclamation point for Shakespeare's lifetime. And there's obviously more history to be explored here about the history of this particular piece of punctuation. And as an expert in this part of history, I was wondering if you could recommend some of your favorite books or resources that you think our listeners should begin with if they're new to the study of exclamation points. Yes. So there is David Crystal's books, as I have already mentioned. He's a linguist. He loves Shakespeare and he has written plenty of books on the English language in general and Shakespeare in particular. And he's also written a very readable, very fun introduction to punctuation. And it's called The Pernickety History of Punctuation. I can definitely recommend that. There's another book called The Secret Life of Punctuation by Keith Houston that looks in a bit more detail at individual marks that tells a little bit about the history as well, but also speaks about certain certain marks. Barring the exclamation point, which is, of course, where then my, my work comes in. I was kind of trying to provide and complete that, that history of individual marks. And for people who are interested in a more scholarly work that also goes back to antiquity, because punctuation, like any human, human thing, I suppose, object or behavior or practice, also has a history and has a very long history. This book by Parks, Punctuation in the West, goes back at least 2,000 years and looks at Greek and Latin manuscripts and also goes up to uh, Shakespeare in the 18th century as well. And for people who are particularly interested in, in Shakespeare and punctuation, they can look at Percy Simpson's Shakespeare's Punctuation, which is actually um, 100 years old, so it's like from 1911. But Simpson was the first person to say, 
well, those signs are not actually random. We can't just discount them. There is rhyme and reason to that. We just have to find out what kind of rhyme and reason there is. These are wonderful resources. I'm so excited to share these. We will link to all of these resources in the show notes for today's episode, where you can go directly to each one of the texts that Florence is recommending for you today. Well, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. I think I would definitely pick a book by Penelope Fitzgerald. She's my favorite writer. She is underread, I think. She started writing quite late in life and she's received recognition relatively late as well. And I think I would pick a novel that if you're a Penelope Fitzgerald fan, you'd probably not necessarily pick that novel, but it's called Offshore. And it's about a mother with her two daughters who lives on a, on a boat, on a barge in London in the 1960s. And the, the book is just so subtle and so slow and sort of develops and unfolds with the rhythms of the tide as well. And I think she's just an amazing stylist. I I can just reread this book again and again. A book that you can read again and again is always a good selection for your desert island. (laughs) So I think that's a smart choice. So what's next for you, Florence? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm working on the next book, which is a complete social history of all the punctuation marks that there are. So not just the exclamation point. And it also really covers thousands of years of of history, lots of different languages, lots of different technologies from the manuscript and the scroll to the book and the printed book and uh, texting and tweeting, for example. So that's keeping me very busy. I'm also writing shorter articles. For example, I'm just writing an article on mind wandering in Renaissance romance. So knights, uh, stories about knights and ladies and quests and going off quest and I'm trying to connect that to parentheses. So I'm trying to say that in a parenthesis in a text, we're kind of allowed to go a little bit off topic and then return. And this is what the knights are doing in their bigger stories. So they go off quest and they learn something and they come back. And it's actually been really important that they had this space to go elsewhere and come back to their main sentence, to their main stories. I'm trying to connect that to mind wandering because cognitive science is finding out things that Shakespeare and contemporaries knew for a very long time that is actually making a lot of sense to give your mind a bit of a break from attention and like focused tasks and daydream a little bit and sort of process and and then come back to the task that you've been doing and being able to do it in a much uh, more profound and much better way. So I like to connect thinking about thinking with punctuation and then with stories and plot devices in the Renaissance. Those sound like exciting explorations. I can't wait to see those come to fruition. What fun things that you're working on. Florence Hazrat, thank you so much for being here this week and taking us through the history of exclamation points for Shakespeare's lifetime and the exciting world of the development of punctuation in the English language. This has been a fun conversation and I appreciate you being here to share it with us. Thank you, Cassidy. It was lovely to talk to you about it. If you like the show today, be sure to leave us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. Every comment and rating that you leave us helps other Shakespeareans find our show. And as you know, we love to connect with our fellow Shakespeareans.
If you'd like to see some visual history that goes along with the conversation you're listening to today, including some looks at some of those printer blocks and early exclamation points from Shakespeare's lifetime, and some examples of exactly what we're talking about, you can see those images in the show notes for today's episode. Along with these images, we've also got direct links to the resources our guest recommends today and places you can connect with Florence Hazret and learn more about her work. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 275. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP275. If you love following along on our show here every week and would like to dive even further into more history about the life of William Shakespeare, then consider becoming a patron of our show. Patrons get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show with interviews from major Shakespeare historians like Stanley Wells and Tiffany Stern. You can listen to these episodes and explore the bonus show notes that go along with each show all in the patrons area. Along with getting access to the bonus episodes, patrons can see sneak peeks at upcoming guests and have the chance to submit your own questions you'd like to have asked during an interview. Find all of the cool things available on Patreon right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.